Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I, hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase. I'm just coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, Everything School HQ, where it is outside my window right now, snowing quite heavily. The inches keep piling up here in a little snowmageddon here in Knoxville, Tennessee, um, the most since I moved here in 2020, and I think it's going to be uh, a little bit more than what kept me snowed in and uh, not able to drive home uh for the holidays that christmas uh three years ago but um man it's uh we got power we're warm for right now but you know everything's school hq it's never a dull moment in america america's college sports town also here down there in decula georgia my good friend and fellow university of north georgia alumni matt green matt good evening sir or wow it's not an evening we're, we're not taping this on an evening uh good morning sir how are you doing Good morning, sir. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm doing well. I, um, you know, this the the rescheduling uh, it worked well for me on my end because because I, like I told you, two of my three NFL teams were were playing last night. I, um, I'm a casual when it comes to NFL fandom, so people might roast me. Do it, do what you will. The Eagles are are a distant third because they're they're drafting the last couple of years, but uh, because of Matthew Stafford. Uh, I've, I've rooted for the lions for so long. I feel like when he went to the Rams, like, like LeBron fans, like, I, I feel like my allegiance had to go, uh, with Stafford, but man, seeing the lions play well this, this year, it's like, I find myself rooting for them every week. So if Stafford had to lose last night, uh, it had to be to Detroit. Gotta be happy for the lions fans getting a, the first playoff win in like 30 something years. They brought out the big guns, Barry Sanders, Eminem, um who else was there there was someone else in that picture who was it calvin johnson calvin johnson and big sean that was it yeah yeah yeah. um an all-time uh logo but i'm also glad that they're on good terms that kind of sucked that calvin was just not on good terms with the lions forever it's just kind of weird that like the best player in franchise history or hmm 
Nah, Second I said, best player in franchise history. Barry Sanders is the GOAT, man. Like, Well, I guess the reason is well, they both ended up retiring young. So I guess I don't. Yeah, it's I don't know. Is it a conversation? Like if you go back and look at Calvin, I don't know. Is it I don't a, think it's a I don't think it's a conversation. Honestly. Okay. Is Stafford third for, for Lions? Because right? at some point we got to look at these receivers putting up these numbers Calvin setting the record uh, with Stafford as the quarterback. Cooper Cup going off. Did he break his record or almost broke the record with Stafford as the mm-hmm. quarterback? Now uh, Puka Nakua setting the rookie record for yards and catches with Stafford as the quarterback. At some point, and, and Stafford was in his bag last night. Like I'm glad they even shouted out Mahomes because he was doing Mahomes type stuff that like goes viral all the time. That little sidearm, no look, just all the little different arm slots. Like he's been doing that forever. And I feel like that's what makes him different than just like just your standard like pocket passer. He's he's always had a swag to his game. Like he just makes the makes just some some of the more ridiculous throws you'll see a quarterback make. But yeah, he was he was on, but unfortunately uh Lions were able to uh to inch out and get the win. Well hey um fun playoffs so far um uh today's games i'm not sure will be all that fun but uh next round should be a lot of fun then the packers just a huge blowout of the cowboys which we'll talk about on uh, tonight's nfl super friend show but uh matt green this is a college football show this is a pod divided uh here on this very program twice a week um all year long with my good friend Bell university north georgia alumni matt green where we have some uh we have some bama stuff we have to talk about we have some college football coaching changes and then uh, the theme on this episode is going to be the way too early top 25 poll by Mark Schlebaugh uh, over there in ESPN uh, this week and kind of um, our thoughts on where uh, the folks are going to place uh, the 2024 uh, best teams out of the gate here because there will be surprises, some surprises and teams that aren't on that list who will make it in and this that, and the other. So we'll decipher that a little bit uh, down the line. But Matt Green, first things first, um, since we last recorded Alabama officially hired Kalen DeBoer. I predicted on the podcast that Kalen DeBoer would end up being the guy uh, at Alabama. Doesn't end up being Dan Lanning. Um, and we've gone back and forth on uh, who would have been potentially the better hire there. I'd still lean. Lanning is probably the safer choice, especially from a recruiting standpoint um, down there in Tuscaloosa. And obviously the footprint and more history in that area of the country. But we'll see uh, the this offensive side of the the ball is set in terms of coaching staff. We're still figuring out some stuff on the defensive side, which I'm going to pick your brain about because it's changing by the minute, uh, depending on who you're reading on both Georgia and Alabama side of things. But Matt Green, uh, your gut instant reaction to Alabama pulling uh, Washington's uh, Kalen DeBoer away to Tuscaloosa. Um, I, I don't think you can say anything bad about the hire uh, of Kalen DeBoer. I mean, yeah, people love to talk about, you know, the culture stuff and, oh, he's a Northwest guy. Can he recruit? It's like as soon as he's got an Alabama A on his chest, he's going to recruit a hell of a lot better than he did with a Washington W on his chest. Like it's it, it's no disrespect to Washington. It's just th- that brand just hits different. And they're they're going to take a step back with Nick Saban or without Nick Saban because it's it's Nick Saban. He's the greatest of all time. Taking a step back could still mean it could mean winning a national championship once every five years instead of once every three or once every single recruiting class. Maybe maybe one senior class goes through without winning a championship. But there there's no saying that they're they can't still be a championship program. They're just they're most likely not going to be as good as they were with Nick Saban. And there's no shade uh, to throw at him with that. But 
I will shout out you for uh, for throwing the Kalen DeBoer out there. I think if I'm kind of with you, Dan Lanning, if he was taking over 2019 Alabama, 2018 hmm. Alabama, Nick Saban hung it up, and obviously Dan Lanning was at a different point in his career, but but regardless, like a coach like Dan Lanning, I feel like would be a perfect guy to just keep it going, doing what they're doing. But let's be honest, it's Alabama is not just out talenting everyone they used to play like they once did. So you know, bringing in a, an offensive guy kind of at the right time that Alabama is still going to get elite talent, but maybe you do need to, maybe the sum does need to be greater or the whole needs to be greater than the sum of the parts because you don't just have greater talent than everyone you're going to play. Maybe Texas has years where they have a better roster and Georgia has a better roster. And maybe Auburn's got a year where their roster's equivalent. It's not just going to be about just how much talent you have. And that's why Nick Saban was ultimately the GOAT, not like, hating on any of his X's and O's philosophies, but his way of accumulating talent and just the, the CEO of an entire organization is, is ultimately why Saban is just kind of second to none in college football. And he's still going to have an office uh, there apparently uh, over there in Tuscaloosa, which I don't know, might be weird, might not. Um, I'm certain it wasn't a blindside situation for Kalen DeBoer and whoever was going to take on this job. And also, I mean, in the, na- in the new era of the transfer portal, like I think it's probably necessary to keep a lot of these guys, to keep a Caleb Downs happy, to keep... I mean, Isaiah Bond obviously enters the portal, and now he's at Texas. Um, and uh, There was an Instagram post as to why uh, Isaiah Bond may have made that move, because from a football standpoint, I don't think yeah. it's a better move, because you just watch three NFL wide receivers uh, really, really thrive in DeBoer's system. So you would assume that a wide receiver currently on Alabama, you would want to stay uh, for this kind of coach and uh, makes the jump. But look, A.D. Mitchell had a great year for Texas. And, and it can be a short-term decision. Like it mm. doesn't have to be, where do I want to, where do I want to graduate? It, a four-year decision that affects the next 40 years of my life. Like people love to say, it's like, no, they have a tight quarterback and I can come in and play. They have an opening, a couple of that receiver and I can come in and I saw what their receivers did last year and I can see how I'll be used this will help me get to the league. And I only need one really good year to get to the NFL. Also, I think it's funny um, the because the ca- college football calendar is broken. Like you have Will Rogers on the sideline for the playoffs and a Washington jersey thrown around and the man will never play for the University of Washington um, after Kalen DeBoer leaves. So um, we'll see where Will Rogers ends up. But just what a weird, weird thing that's going to be lost in the archive of Will Rogers on the sideline for Huskies in the CFP and not there. Maybe he follows him to Alabama. I don't know. Maybe there's a whole competition. You do Will Rogers versus uh, Jalen Milrow in the spring. I don't know. It's kind of a risky pool for your last year if you're Will Rogers to try and go against the incumbent and then as soon as all the dust settles then then Jim Harbaugh is going to take an NFL job and then Michigan is going to start the carousel all over again and because that's the one thing that uh we're obviously going to get to um but I was kind of foreseeing like a ridiculous kind of domino effect like Mm. Dan Lanning takes the Alabama job now Oregon's open Oregon goes poaches this guy now this is open like for to get Washington, no disrespect again to Washington, but they're not like a blue blood program and they go out and get, that's not necessarily the most high pro, like a guy might not leave a high profile job for Washington, right? Mm. But you got Jed Fish now from Arizona getting the Washington job and now Arizona's the job that's open and I feel like the dust is settled. Like no, like I will disrespect Arizona. They're not a, they're not a college football, a relevant college football program. 
that's going to take any sort of high profile. Well, no, they're relevant right now, but just not a contender, not like a needle mover. They're not. The big yeah, the, the needle moving of the coaching carousel, yeah. I think, is over after just like after just two two stops. But like you said, I think the or Michigan. I mean, Harbaugh interviewed with uh, the Chargers this week, and I don't know. Nothing would surprise me about Harbaugh. If he came back, it wouldn't surprise me. But also, J.J. McCarthy not coming back. He enters uh, the NFL draft. Makes me wonder if he knows, you know, because it wouldn't hurt for him to have one more year under Jim Harbaugh and in the system based on what we've seen thus far that you're not super excited. He doesn't feel like a round one guy uh, at this point. But I would also say that J.J. McCarthy's stock right now is higher than it will ever be. So... You know, maybe it is mid-second round and he's the fifth quarterback taken. I think that's about as good as he could do. And maybe someone, maybe the six, maybe there's six first round quarterbacks drafted. You know, who knows? Mm. Teams just go nuts and convince themselves that that guys are first round caliber, but he might not necessarily that might not just be knowledge of, of Harbaugh leaving. Yeah, I don't know. Um, we'll see on that front. So we'll when that happens, or if it doesn't happen, we'll talk about it. But in terms of just what DeBoer is building here, because I was very curious what his first staff is going to look like and how much, uh, how many guys he kept on from Alabama, how many guys he brought over from Washington, and there was a wait and see with Ryan Grubb, the OC, um, who ended up who turned down Saban in Alabama last off season. He ends up at Alabama as an OC anyway. The following year so good job by him and he gets to come with DeBoer here his longtime guy I mean he won the Washington Washington job by all uh, accounts but they go a different way uh, with Jed Fish who we'll talk about in a second but look you're keeping the defensive line coach who's recruited extremely well and developed really well in Roach you have the running back coach who's been there for I think four years now um, and he's obviously recruited well Justice Haynes looks like he's gonna be a dude uh, for Alabama uh, going into next year and they have a lot of talent still in that running back room um going into next year so i think it's a nice mix where he brings over his own o-line coach who had a great year uh brings his wide receiver coach shepherd who obviously developed a bunch of nfl wide receivers so that all makes sense and then you look on the defensive side of the ball i mean <laughs> i don't know what's happening here because this is this is changing week over week but before we even get into the defensive side with Traveris robinson what say you matt green when it comes to um the offensive side and what DeBoer has already built here on that side. Does it, if you're an Alabama fan, do you feel pretty good about the kind of staff that he's putting together? Yeah. Cause I mean, that's where I feel like you basically would trust. I mean, personally, I would trust Kalen DeBoer regardless of, of what he does on the offensive side of the ball. And he, he's bringing Ryan Grubb with him. It's like, mm-hmm. well, I trust that that offensive side is going to be as good as it possibly can get at Alabama. Like this past year was, was back to playing elite defense. They're going to lose a lot of guys. That's definitely where I would, I would have more concern, but I mean, maybe with your lack of where you do, you're just the amount of talent you have as an Alabama fan. You just assume a lot of guys can come in and, and field a good defense. Yeah. And look, I think those are smart retaining options at RB and defensive line. But, Jeremy Pruitt still out there? He's got like a show cause or yeah, something? Yeah, he's not coming in there. I think uh, I don't think Jeremy Pruitt will be there anytime soon. But um, he brings in Courtney Morgan, his GM, which this is another thing, part of like the big two and stuff. Like if you look at these jobs, it's just becoming so NFL. We have a director of scouting. We have GMs now. Um, it's just part of the business. You need, because of the portal and everything else, you need people around the clock keeping up with this stuff and uh, checking out different, uh, per- like it's just, it's necessary. Uh, so these coaches aren't losing their minds with all these different things to do. But you bring in Jarrett McIlwain. I'll give you one guess. Who is Jarrett McIlwain related to Matt Green? 
I would say Jim McElwain. It's his son. Yes, Jim McElwain's son um, will be the director of scowling here for uh, for Is he a Alabama. big shark fan? Uh, look, I don't know. But Courtney Morgan also coming in as GM. Uh, Morgan um, it was a Michigan alum, played for Lloyd Carr, uh, was in Jim Harbaugh's staff, and then eventually DeBoer hired him away. But uh, I think that's a sneaky good one for him um on that uh on that side of things but now let's go to the other side here matt green Traveris robinson who i think interviewed this week sunday night um he interviewed for the alabama defensive coordinator job he was the co-defensive coordinator but if you ask lane kiffin last year he was the defensive coordinator last year for alabama it was kind of weird that he didn't wait around because if you're kaylin DeBoer, it's also like he's an ace recruiter bama's defense was good rising star in the industry if it's not broke, don't fix it. Like you need as many uh, Southern ties and just ace recruiters on staff as you possibly can. Because look, Kalen DeBoer and Graham Coffey had a good thread about this. Has not ever recruited from the high school ranks as his primary building block for his program. Like we haven't seen that. Like Fresno, obviously, you don't do that. Um, Indiana, it's a lot of transfers because there's not a lot of high school town in Atlanta, in Indiana, in that area. And then Washington was a bunch of transfers um, and how he's built. And you look at those two classes he had at Washington, neither were elite. Um, so you just, this is a totally different way of building of roster building, uh, at Alabama, because you will continue. It doesn't matter with the portal, you know, at Georgia, Tennessee, like you want the portal is the finishing touch. Like the portal is just clearing up some, some missing points on, on your roster. You filling out stuff. You're not building that way. And I'm curious how Kalen DeBoer adjusts to that because he's going to have to just to that like he's going to have to build and have those relationships with high school coaches all across the southeast and th- it's just different and doesn't mean you can't do it it just means it's going to be different for DeBoer and kind of a, uh, a different world in that regard but Robinson you were wondering because this was my big question was like if he keeps them and you have your Washington guys on offense like that's a really good staff like that's a good balance if you're a Bama fan of the Kalen DeBoer era in Alabama but then Kirby takes it. <laughs> Will Muschamp goes into a analyst role, and it's kind of, it it's the biggest hire over the weekend. Maybe even bigger than Kalen DeBoer to Alabama because he's such a good recruiter. And Kirby just you already have this Death Star, and you bring in Traveris Robinson. It's like, oh, <laughs> like how is anyone supposed to compete with Georgia on the recruiting trail with how many dudes they now have in there? Especially with the USC defensive back coach who's also in the building as an ace recruiter. So. What say you, Matt Green, when you're thinking about all this and, and everything that's happened with Robinson and uh, UGA and Alabama? I think you nailed it uh, for the most part. I think like coaching and recruiting, it's a zero sum game, you know, mm-hmm. like obviously with Georgia didn't add T-Rob to their staff, it's still a, a really good staff. But now that you have him, Alabama does not have him. And so that that right there. Like you've seen this guy, he's been all over the place. He's he's been with Will Muschamp at Florida, at South Carolina, and at Auburn. So uh, Will Muschamp obviously thinks highly of the guy. I, I feel like a guy who's been under Will Muschamp for years, and Muschamp's been under Kirby for years. It's like the, he's that same mentality. Uh, that, that great recruiter at Georgia, I feel like it's really just a luxury of riches right now. The fact that you have a guy of a status like Will Muschamp that is willing to just basically do anything for the program. Like he can pay this guy. He can be an on-field coach. He can not be. I, now he's going to be more of an analyst role. And, and that could be because like you were saying one of his sons is at Vanderbilt now. But even when he was an analyst, you you heard commits 
at times. Guys that committed to Georgia, defensive backs, defensive players, talk about Will Muschamp is part of the reason they're committing, and he wasn't even an on-field coach at that point. So this guy, maybe all these years uh, wandering the SEC, he had, he had to really uh, he has to prove himself uh, back in good graces uh, to the Georgia fans. Uh, but he's willing to do anything uh, for Kirby Smart and this program. And I think that that goes a long way. And and his opinion of uh, Travaris Robinson is obvious because anywhere he's gone, he's he's brought T-Rob with him. What what do you do? So, like, if you're a Georgia fan, Matt Green, like, Muschamp seems clear that he's transitioning out. Like, if you read the reporting on Dogs HQ with Rusty and company and you read um, just through the tea leaves here, like, I don't know how they pivot. Like, if T-Rob, because Greg McElroy was predicting that he does flip back on his show this morning, um, that he flips back to Alabama, and it's just the sole DC and not the co-DC. Like, if that happens... Travaris Robinson? Mm-hmm. And if that happens, and he flips back to Alabama as the sole DC uh, there, instead of being the co-DC, which he'll be with Glenn Schumann at Georgia, where does Georgia go? Do they just not replace... Will Muschamp, did they just give Glenn Schumann just the full-time DC? Do you think they go somewhere? Do you want them to hire someone else? Or what What do they do? Because it seems like you can't bring Will Muschamp back out of this analyst-type transition. It, it, I guess it all depends on what the the rationale is for Will Muschamp. But, I mean, I think it, it, it could just be a matter of hiring a safeties coach, and that's, that's all you have to do. But mm. um, Will Muschamp, I think maybe he goes into an analyst role, but if it is just the kind of, Oh, well, I want to see my kid play in school. Then it's like, maybe he's just doing that for like four years. And then he comes back to Georgia staff. Like after that, you know, because it's, it's a very unique situation of him being like one of the best friends with the head coach. And this is his alma mater. So I think Muschamp is probably just going to coach in whatever capacity he can. And, and Georgia needs him. But because, because I don't think, I think because of a guy like Travis Robinson's, uh just reputation and everything that's the only reason this guy's a co-dc you know if 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 you don't have a guy that's that big time then he probably just a secondary coach and uh, glenn schumann is the is the full-time uh defensive coordinator is just the the outright defensive coordinator so mm. i don't think it's any sort of like you know crisis if oh now they don't have robinson or Muschamp. i think Knowing Kirby Smart, there's going to be another guy they, they find to do that role. And also, looking at Rusty Mansell's update, I think as of like 12.55, like this afternoon, I think he was saying it looks like Robinson is going to stay with Georgia. So mm-hmm. that that's the latest update we have. But but yeah, so I think regardless of how it how it shakes out, it, it's a huge hire for Georgia. And if, if it falls through... Kirby Smart, I guess a DB coach and a Kirby Smart, I just tend to to trust he's going to get that right. Fair enough, Matt Green. Um, we'll see, but I think it's it's also just kind of fun. Uh, this kind of like this is such a niche SEC like juggernaut battle fighting over uh, Robinson as your DC here down the stretch as these two uh, longtime powers and rivals are battling for the same dudes, and it's uh it's also different where I'm like. George deserves credit for being like, how do we up this? How do like, cause Kirby's going out of his way. He's like going, I'll just bring in the USC guy. I'll, um, I'll go after certain like Fran Brown. I'll like kind of go out of his immediate circle. Like his main, he brought in, he has his guys like Bobo, obviously in Muschamp who go, he goes way back with, but like 
Monken was a little bit different. And then um, he wasn't afraid to just go from Coley to Monken. He wasn't afraid to just shake things up. And he also knows better than probably anybody, and this is something Hypel has to continue to adjust on, is that like he understands that it's still a player's game. And this is still ultimately about having the best players on the field. You can scheme all you want. You can be the best schemer and defensive-minded coach in college football, the best offensive-minded coach in college football. But if you don't have the players, there it comes a point. Like Washington found that out against Michigan in the trenches in the national title game. At some point, the bodies and the players, especially in the trenches, matter. And I think Kirby, more than anybody in this sport right now, especially with Saban being out, I don't think there's any more tenacious <laughs> recruiter and program evaluator than Kirby Smart in terms of being like, yeah, we're great, but this one little thing, this little thing, it's like you don't need Traveris Robinson to still be the best team in college football, but it also just m- makes me feel better about us being there. Like it only helps. Like it might get us from 98 to 99%. Like, you know what I mean? Like he's just not afraid to do those little things that I just, it's why they're the, the, the number one team in the sport. Yeah, I, uh, I agree completely. I think uh, you've seen at this point, and and also like the current D line coach Trey Scott, and I mm. can't, I, I don't know how to pronounce the the line outside linebacker coach, the guy they got from SMU. Um, mm. Like those were guys that didn't have like a history of being Kirby or Saban guys or anything. He's 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 not. It doesn't have to be like uh you know whatever whatever that term is like a one one room thought or whatever. Like it, it's he's open to new ideas from 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 different coaches. Absolutely. Um, well, on the flip side, Washington, they move quick on their next head coach. Um, it was Jed Fish, who had a 10-1 year at uh, Arizona. Um, turned that program around little by little. One win, I think, in his first year. Five is second. And then double digits, his third. So um, he's been all over the place. He's worked for just about everybody. Um, I think it's a solid hire for Washington. My gut reaction, because my gut reaction when this happened, when DeBoer left was Matt Campbell, because the new AD has a lot of Iowa ties. um, And I thought Matt Campbell makes a lot of sense. I think he interviewed uh, for it before Kalen DeBoer got it last time. But uh, Jeff Fish is solid. I think he's going to recruit probably better than DeBoer did uh, at UW. But obviously, I think there will be a drop off and it's going to be a change. But we'll see how much of Arizona's guys he can bring with him because Arizona has a lot of talent on that offense. And obviously, their quarterback uh, was really electric um, this fall. So you wonder if he comes with them and then you feel pretty good um, about Washington, at least in this transition moment. But your immediate reaction to Jed Fish making the jump to Washington. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, You know, it remains to be seen, seen like how good this really is. Um, Jed Fish is a guy who's just been all over. He's just jumps everywhere from year to year, two Mm -hmm. years here, two years there. He's the ultimate Um, portal coach. Yeah. So we'll see. He's been in the NFL a lot too. Like, you know, maybe this guy wants ultimately to be an NFL head coach. So like, who knows how long he's around for, but you know, to see what Arizona was, like you said, the last couple of years, like they, they've become respectable. Like, so I feel like Jed Fish could be a good coach, but um, I think regardless, if, if Kalen DeBoer was back in 2024, this team was taking a step back. So with a new head coach, losing some guys in the portal, it might not be a great year one, but that, that might not be a fair reflection either. Like just like you look at a TCU Sunny Dykes a year ago, like, they didn't have a coach leap and they saw a massive drop off. Like, I think it was kind of kind of in the cards for them. So it, 
your 2024 won't be the best judge of, of Jed Fish, even if he has taken over a program that just played for a national title. Absolutely. Um, I also just don't think he's there. Like, what you don't think he's there three years from now, right? I don't think he is there from three for three years. But I mean, that's he's got to do a good job at the same yeah. time. So I mean, if he's if he's playing, if he he's got Washington on a, in a position that an NFL team wants him, then that's that's probably a good thing for the Huskies. Yeah, I think he's like he's in where Sark was at Washington, where you're like, I never thought Steve Sarkeesian was going to be the Washington head football coach for ten years. But he got him solid. He recruited really was he well. At Washington before USC, USC poached him. Um, I don't know if he was at Washington before he got the job. I'm trying to put that put that time. He's frame. like 49. I'm trying to think. He was not USC. at Washington. No, he was at USC, Oakland Raiders, QB coach in 04, and then was the QB coach at USC from 01 to 03. No, so he was at Washington head coach before he USC poached him to be. The oh, yes, yes, yes. I thought you were saying, was he at USC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember he was under that great run. With Kiffin and company piece. with Pete Carroll. Yeah, yeah. Norm Chow and, mm-hmm. and different guys. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Final thing here before we jump into our way too early cut top 25 college football poll uh, reactions. Matt Green, uh, Georgia Tech. Had a sneaky good hire as new DC. I want to touch on this real quick. But Tyler Santucci, who was the DC um, at Duke, he called uh, plays for Mike Elko's stout Duke Blue Devils defense. Uh, he was nominated for the Broyles Award. Um, they were number one in scoring defense uh, in the ACC uh, this past year. So I think this is one that's under the radar. A lot of people won't notice it or bat an eye. But Buster Faulkner put on a clinic on the offensive side of the ball, got Haynes King really cooking with something. Brent Key quietly built a great staff here now at uh, Georgia Tech. Um, and I think this is a sneaky big hire because he's going to come in. He's already proven he can win and in, uh, in terms of Santucci uh, at what he did at Duke. Good pedigree following Elko around. That's a really good duo with Faulkner and Santucci and what Brent Key is doing here. So I'm not saying the Jackets are going to win the league next year, but... I'm also saying like Brent Key has checked a lot of boxes and I think he has built a really, really quietly robust staff around him, which he needed to do as kind of like a CEO coach as a offensive line guy. Yeah, I respect that uh, for sure. And I thought what he did as the interim guy, he he kind of proved that, you know, he was he was better than Jeff Collins. But, um, you know, what remains to be seen, I think Buster Faulkner was definitely a good hire. I just I still don't know what the ceiling is uh, for Georgia mm-hmm. Tech. So like I think he could be doing a really good job. Do they finish top twenty five? Like I don't know. They if, if Tech's winning eight, seven, eight games, uh, you're doing a hell of a job. No, I don't. Uh, I don't agree. I don't disagree. I also think I'm excited for our preview for the ACC because I think Tech. I'm not going to say Tech's winning double digit games next year. Oh. I think Tech's an eight nine win looking team next year, and they could flirt with better. I think they're the year two bump with Haynes King in this system. On the ACC, do you do you have knowledge of their schedule? I don't have their schedule in front of me. Let me pull it up. But I think this might be the most competitive Tech Georgia game we've had. And uh, I mean, obviously, was it two years I mean, ago? Been a couple of competitive ones. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, but I think this one will be. Uh, pretty pretty interesting so they have to go to notre dame that's gonna be tough you get georgia state at home you get oh florida state they open with florida state in dublin um but look that's dju that's winnable folks uh georgia tech can beat 
Florida State uh, there. Um, at Georgia, VMI at home. I said Georgia State. You get NC State at home. You get I mean, Miami at home. Georgia Tech international thing that we don't know about. Like this is the second time they've opened overseas, right? Didn't they play Boston College? In well, they didn't have George O'Leary at one point. Maybe he set this up. He put it in motion thirty years ago. <laughs> he got the Ireland thing in motion. Um, I don't know. You can keep going. But at Syracuse, year one, Fran Brown. Not, I mean, we'll see. But you get Louisville at Louisville. That's gonna be tough. At Virginia Tech, yeah, it's winnable. And then, I mean, like I said, Miami, who's going to be good? You get them at home. Get Duke at home. And so divisions home, just... are gone next year. Is that Who? right? Are divisions gone next year? I think so. So finally avoid Clemson. for the Yes, they do avoid Clemson. But also that's kind of sad because like Clemson was their main rival, right? Like when you think Georgia Tech's rival in the ACC, was it not Clemson for you? I guess. Or Virginia? <laughs> sure. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know who georgia tech's rival it clemson's definitely the closest one traditionally they're the closest geographically so yeah i guess that's probably their biggest rival Ugh, can't believe they're not playing them next year um also they don't have any of the new i just realized they don't have any of the new acc schools wait so who who are the new aces cal S- and- smu cal and uh stanford yeah that's interesting i would think yeah i would think everyone would have one or two of them on there interesting mm. i don't know uh well matt green uh the theme of the show here we got the way too early college football top 25 poll from mark slayball over there on espn.com my question to you when you look at this early top 25 we have a lot of time to think about where things are going but the gut reaction to what this says to you to georgia at number one uh bama at number two um oregon at three or excuse me, Bama at four, Oregon at three, Texas at two, um, Ohio State at five, Michigan at six, Ole Miss at seven, Missouri at eight, Arizona at nine. I think you would redo that now with the Jetfish departure. Notre Dame at 10. So you look at that top 10, Matt Green. Um, does that feel about right? What's your, what's your, who makes the most sense here? Arizona at nine is wild. Just <laughs> seeing that right off the bat. Um, but I mean, I think it all, a lot of it makes sense. You know, with what Michigan lost, I saw somebody just highlighting, you know, all their starters, and I it had it had to at least be like eighteen of their twenty-two starters are gone. Um, I don't know that number off the top of my head, but it's uh, it was a lot. And Donovan Edwards is back. Uh, I just saw that announcement today. But so seeing Mich- Ohio State, Michigan, right there at five and six, like Ohio State's obviously going to be pretty loaded next year, but they are every year. So if Will Howard can could be an incremental incre- uh, improvement from Kyle McCord. I, that might be all Ohio State needs to actually win the Big Ten and potentially, uh, you know, win the national championship. But you know, I think the usual suspects are over there. Are, are there Oregon? They're obviously replacing the quarterback, but you know, that's they they have a pretty loaded roster. I feel like they should be one of the best teams in college football. Um, we, we've obviously talked about what Ole Miss has done in the portal and, and everything, but Ole Miss feels like that ultimate wild card that they could we, – we, we've never seen Ole Miss play for a, an SEC championship, right? So th- they could win 10, 11 games next year, and they could also win seven games next year, and you just wouldn't be that surprised either way. So I feel like they're – it's kind of same with Missouri. Like those two teams are real wild cards that like if, if they're not up there – 
it it could be because they're disappointing or it could be because it's LSU and it's Texas A&M or it's Tennessee or it's Florida, you know, or Auburn. It's like it they could just be replaced by by someone else that's the third and fourth best teams in the SEC. I think the main thing that I think is 100% right is Texas and Georgia are going to be the two most talented, dangerous, best pick to win the national title next year. Quinn Ewers back. You lose some receiver stuff and you lose some NFL guys for Texas. But like, I just think in terms of talent and where they both were last year and what we saw here with both programs, my gut tells me Texas and Georgia should have the best odds when they come out um, to win the national title. I think they're the two best teams in the SEC next year. Um, I could also make the case. I mean, Bama right there at three. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Um, Old Miss, I think you could make the case will be better than Alabama next year, especially with the transition to DeBoer in year one. Here's what I'll say. Lock it up. Mizzou is not finishing in the top 10 in uh, the college football poll. And if they're a preseason top 10 team, go ahead and sell. They go to Texas A&M next year. They go to Bama. They get Oklahoma at home. They're at Mississippi State, which is a tough place to win. And they're at South Carolina. We know always a tough place to win. I just, I don't see it with uh mizzou losing baker to lsu was brutal for them um they've obviously recruited pretty solid uh, to this point but i would sell the the mizzou top 10 they feel like an eight and four nine and three type team to me next year i don't think they're gonna flirt with the college football playoff i don't think that's gonna be the same type of year for uh for the for the tigers but i will say to my favorite by low and i'm not gonna mention tennessee here because i think tennessee where he has them i think 17th feels about right as a preseason uh shot for them the best outside the top 10 who i think just my gut instinct is going to be in the top 10 and will flirt with the playoff and actually could win the title i think notre dame with riley leonard and company i think notre dame pulling brian kelly's oc or pulling yeah brian kelly's oc back to notre dame i think will be big for them i think notre dame's gonna win a lot of games next year would not be surprised if they're in the playoff i'd be very surprised if they miss it actually um so Notre Dame is probably a top five, top six pick for me off the top. Nussmeyer, we'll see if he's just as, I mean, it's tough. Uh, you lose Malik neighbors to Brian Thomas, a lot of, a lot of skill position talent on the offensive side of the ball. So LSU doesn't jump out to me as a top 10 immediate. I will say Clemson at 19 might be a good buy low. I understand we do this every year with Clemson. Garrett Riley's back for year two on this staff. Um, they've not really added a lot in the portal. You lose Shipley and Trotter Jr. who were really good, but Sammy Brown, five-star wide receiver or linebacker, excuse me, out of uh, Jefferson. He's a player. You got TJ Moore, Bryant Wesco. You got some dudes coming in here. Kate Klubnick, another year in the system. I, my gut tells me Florida State or Clemson's probably a good buy low uh, top 10 team for next year coming in at 19. But uh, what say you? Who on the outside um, do you think has the best shot in your estimation of finishing in the top 10 and being a real playoff threat uh that's outside of the top mm. 10 right now i i think you uh you threw out some good ones i was surprised you left off one um and that is the kansas jayhawks with Jalen daniels you're surprised again mm -hmm. i'm surprised you did not include the kansas jayhawks with okay. what the big 12 is gonna be next year like they don't have to go through oklahoma and texas to win this conference anymore like the yeah you got to go at West Virginia and at Baylor. Like those are going to be like your toughest tests of the season. So no disrespect to those teams out there, but you just look at what Kansas uh, has Lance Leipold, you know, maybe he was Washington's first pick. I don't know. Like there was, 
he, he there's uh definitely some some teams out there that wanted him and he and he said that he's staying at Kansas. So I think uh with with the in the new Big 12, I think Kansas is like who who's the best team in the Big 12? Like who are the best like four teams in the Big 12? I feel like this conference is going to be an absolute like just every year is just going to be completely unpredictable and I I wouldn't be surprised if if the Kansas Jayhawks are the best team in the Big 12 next year. You know what's funny about that? The best team in the Big 12 has never played a Big 12 game. And who's that? Colorado? Utah. Or I guess they have played a Big 12 game uh, years ago. Because you're Utah bringing Cam won. Rising back and company. Like, if I did say my preseason favorite for next year, it's, it's Utah. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and, and Kansas doesn't have to play Utah next year. Mm-hmm. So I think they're... Uh, they're in a good spot, I think, going into 2024. And a lot of that is if Jalen Daniels can stay healthy, of course. Final one here. Who's not on the top 25 list that you think right now? They're not a top 25 team. They're unranked. Who do you think is most likely to be the like surprise of the college football season based on what you're seeing with the portal recruiting, coaching, and stuff like that? Who outside the top 25 could you see just shocking everybody and finding their way into the top 10? Because that happens every year in this sport who do you have right now circled as like a just a a, the ultimate buy low that no one's talking about that you've tucked away i think it's tough um i'm not gonna say i'm high on auburn this year but it, it feels like q freeze going into year two like we've just seen a lot of teams you know surprise everyone uh with a you know a a year two breakthrough so Mm. I don't know that Auburn's that team. If it's still Peyton Thorne, like I'm not going to bet my actual money on it, <laughs> but, but they're one that's like, they wouldn't surprise me if they got up into the top 20, maybe won like eight or nine games or something next year. I think Auburn's a good pull. Like the year two bump is real. Um, I could, I could definitely see it um, with Auburn. Peyton Thorne year two, maybe just the full off season in the program. Maybe he looks up because we've seen, good Peyton Thorne like Michigan State like we've seen at least a version of Peyton Thorne that like makes you say he's not atrocious like he can he can be okay and you have some talent behind him so I think it would be a no-brainer if Caden Salter ended up making the jump from Liberty to uh Hugh Freeze this offseason in Auburn now if he had found his way to the Plains I would say that's like just stamp it (laughs) just stamp uh Auburn as a the best not in the top 25 but most likely to make it in the top 10 um next year because they have a bunch of talent i mean obviously he freeze is recruited extremely well right out of the gate here but um yeah no auburn i think is a a really good pull outside the top 25 and especially hey, the will SEC. rogers is back on the the portal market maybe he's a candidate for auburn i, I don't know they, he's still... like a Hugh freeze guy he's not really mobile he's more of a i don't know where though where do you think will rogers ends up because like he's not i don't think he follows DeBoer to bama um could he just stay? Like, why wouldn't you just stay at Mississippi State? Like, they don't really have like a guaranteed. I mean, Jeff Levy's <laughs> yeah. a good offensive mind. Like, just go back to Mississippi State, right? Yeah, I don't know. I um, I I, I feel like I don't even know how good Will Rogers is still. So, I, I, like, I don't know who he's better than, who he's worse than. Like, is he better than Jalen Milrow? Like, I don't think so. Like, he's obviously a completely different player, but he's thrown for a million yards in his five years in college. So I don't know. He'll, I'm sure, he'll land on his feet somewhere. But he seems like the kind of guy that needs a guarantee uh, that he's the guy because this is the, this is the last hurrah for him in college. Uh, final thing: How much does it sting 
for Florida State fans because we got a lot of heat in our comments uh, for the the video uh, that we did about DJU and just kind of our pessimism about how that fit's going to be and the drop off for Florida State here um, going into next year. But they pivot because Cam Ward was going to the NFL. And then not so fast, my friend, Cam Ward pops into Miami, their rival here at the the end of this thing. And now Miami, I mean, they're spicy. And Cam Ward's going to be good at Miami. It's going to be fun. And Miami's obviously got a lot of talent. Crystal Ball's recruited really well. Um, I don't know. That that stings a little bit, I feel like. The, the no-good offseason for Florida State continues because Cam Ward, I think, would have been a much more... Uh, exciting and uh, better gamble for Florida State to be uh, elite once again next year versus uh, what DJU's ceiling is. So I don't know. Just that's kind of a sneaky one where Cam Ward winds up at Miami after all and uh, DJU at Florida State. Yeah, I'm with you. Like you were talking about like that Georgia Tech win or game week one. It's like that's not going to be a guaranteed win for this Florida Mm -mm. State team. So uh I don't know. They could they could win double digit games again next year, and I wouldn't be shocked because yeah. you know the ACC just isn't that strong. But I I wouldn't be shocked if we saw an eight or nine win season uh, mm-hmm. year from now. Maybe Florida looks a little better, but that that game is at home. Um, but yeah, and and now to see Cam Ward, who we thought was going to the NFL, now wind up at Miami, that definitely makes Miami just uh, like you said, just a little. A little bit sexier uh, when you look at those uh, preseason odds. Like they might could they might could make something happen, but you know it remains to be seen if Cam Ward. Like how good is Cam Ward? Like he's he's put up some stats at times, and they've been Washington State's offense looked terrible at times. So I don't know. I, I think uh, Miami seems like the most one of those. Like if there was a team that was a quarterback away type of thing, like they're 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 recruiting well. They're they'll they're building up so. Cam Ward should be able to make a difference, but I don't. I, I still don't think I'm. I'm like buying Miami as like the ACC favorite or anything. No, um, but I think they're up there. I think the ACC is going to be fun next year. I think it's going to be very close at the top. I think you're looking at a lot of nine, eight win teams who could all maybe break through. But like Louisville, North Carolina, Miami, NC State, um, maybe even Virginia Tech, depending on some stuff they were coming on late. They're a bowl team. They're Brent Price quietly getting that back on the track. Georgia Tech, we talked about. Um, who am I missing here? Uh, who's going to be jumbled? Clemson, going to be jumbled at the top. And no divisions. I just, I think the top of the ACC is going to be very convoluted. And there's not going to be much separation between like the top five. It's my gut instinct going into next year. Hey, don't, don't count those Tar Heels. Or SMU, by the way. SMU could win the ACC next year. They're good. Wow. I was joking, by the way. I'm 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 officially off the Tar Heels bandwagon. Mm, I but we like the Jeff Collins hire as DC. I think it's solid. Sure, but after after uh, not doing anything with Sam Howell or uh, or Drake May, I'm I'm not any higher than on than I am than I used to be on North Carolina. Mm. Well, that's all we've got here on this snow day edition of A Pod Divided, uh, your favorite college football show twice a week here on the program. Matt Green, thank you as always, my friend. Uh, another one uh, later this week, so we'll figure out uh, what we're, our theme is going to be each well, each, each episode during the offseason. We'll have a theme and all that good stuff as we uh, keep pumping out college football content uh, each and every week on this very program. But Matt, stay safe out there. Thank you as always, and I'll talk to you very soon. Yes, sir.
Alright, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas, coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee, Everything School HQ, here on the Tennessee Vol Sports Guys, here every Sunday night on this very program. No Ethan Stone this week, no Jack Foster. Jack Foster should be back next week. Ethan will be back uh, soon enough as well, but Ryan Shepard of Rocky Top Insider is here. Ryan, good evening, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm uh, excited to get on and talk about an eventful week for Tennessee sports, and I'm excited to be back in Knoxville after spending 20-plus hours on the road this week covering some Tennessee basketball. So mm. glad to have a nice, easy Sunday, enjoying some NFL football, and uh, ready for the week ahead at home. There we go, taping this halftime of Packers-Cowboys, which might get interesting in the second half with the big touchdown at yeah. the end, uh, get the ball first. We'll we'll see y'all, the listeners will already know, because this will be up uh, after this game is over, but um either way uh ryan Shemper, there was some tennessee stuff that happened over the weekend uh main thing here we'll get into some football and then continue our baseball player spotlight series um after doing drew beam last week uh dylan dryling uh this week who's my dude one of my dudes i've got several dudes jotted down here um even though you've tried to ruin my week with a certain starting pitcher you think might be in the rotation that i'm not going to address on this very program because look it's uh you got to keep your inner peace and uh that's what i need right now um ryan shemper but 24 hours after we do this during the college football season uh 24 hours after the tennessee goes into athens and wins uh a tough game a lot tougher than i thought it was going to be especially with how the first half is rolling zakai with a really uh aggressive and <laughs> mean steal and layup at one point where i thought it was just that was going to be it where i thought tennessee was going to go on a roll and they're just going to kind of coast uh the rest of the way and they very much did not do so. But your biggest takeaway, you're still thinking about from Vols Dogs, 24 hours removed uh, from the stag, Ryan Shepard. Probably just that Tennessee doesn't win that game last year hmm. after the way they fell behind in the second half. And, you know, I think that's probably for a multitude of reasons, but, you know, chief amongst them and number one is just don't connect. And, mm. Just a different gear that he gives this Tennessee team, and we, I mean, we've said it from the jump. We saw it at Wisconsin when he really iced that game away in the last minutes going ISO. We saw it against Illinois when in the middle 10, 12 minutes of that game, Tennessee couldn't make anything, and then he just hit a bunch of shots in a row, and it just freed everybody up. And we saw it earlier this week at Mississippi State in the game that Tennessee didn't end up winning, uh, but climbed back from down 13 in the second half to tied a game at a couple different times, most notably with 35 seconds left only to lose uh, there in the last 10 seconds or so. And just what he does for this Tennessee team and when everything was going wrong offensively for the first, mm, we'll say, 12 minutes of the second half, he just made an, enough baskets where it didn't get completely out of hand, even though Georgia, you know, at one point made eight of their first 12 threes in the second half. They couldn't miss from deep. And, and obviously Tennessee fell behind by 11, so it wasn't like they were just right in the thick of it the whole time, but they, they never got out of range. And then because of that, when their defense finally locked in uh, and stepped up in the last five minutes and Dalton Connect kept on scoring, they were able to uh, erase the deficit and, and get a big win on the road. And you just saw... A veteran Tennessee team, and you know we talked about it last week. It's been one of my big talking points with this Tennessee team of you might not have one guy. Now this week we feel a lot better about Tennessee having one guy and Dalton Connect, but you have a bunch of different dudes that can step up, and on a day where Josiah Jordan-James was really bad and Santiago Vescovi wasn't great, which would be the two elders, you know, statesmen you would think of on this Tennessee team, 
Zakai Ziegler was really good in the second half. Jonas Adu, who played all 20 minutes in the second half, was really good and just elite defensively down the stretch, as was Jemai Meshack, who did Jemai Meshack things on the defensive end. And, and you saw a Tennessee team keep fighting and, and find a way to win in the last... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Five minutes where a young, inexperienced Georgia team who a lot of young players to really like on that Georgia team and I think will be an NCAA tournament team, if not this year, um, and I probably wouldn't think they will this year. But before too long, and kind of their first big-time taste against a, a top-level SEC team in some ways kind of fold at the end. And I hope Danny White took note of uh, what his brother uh, instituted uh, at the Stag, which was all the, I mean, just the visuals of all the college kids just being on yeah. top of these players. And Tennessee was rattled, and I don't think that happens in the old Stegman Coliseum, and I don't think that happens in a lot of venues, but because... You're not going to believe this. Putting a bunch of rowdy college kids uh, up close uh, near the court on a Saturday afternoon tip uh, will get people energized and will create a hostile atmosphere, especially when you're an underdog, nine point dog going in this game. And um, that kind of was a sneaky big difference. So, I mean, I've joked about TBA just being a sleepy venue, but it's true. You look at that atmosphere and you look at the stag and look, man, that's, that needs to change. And I don't care who, which, uh, wealthy <laughs> donor, whoever up close is going to have to move back, uh, for these big time games. Maybe you just pick and choose, like you can stay in those spots on Tuesdays or whatever, but every big game we're moving, we're moving the seating chart. We're doing stuff like, uh, what Georgia did on Saturday, because you see it can make a difference, uh, in the right circumstance. And, um, I think Tennessee was clearly, uh, not prepared for that kind of environment. And when they got hit in the mouth and that run happened and George is just making a lot of threes and it it just is kind of reeling. Like they were they were chompy and Zakai obviously was saying it stuff, but I loved Zakai getting the last lap at the end. But you could tell there it was getting uh, contentious between uh, the balls and uh, what was going on around them. No doubt. And to that point, you know, starting on the Tennessee side of things, Danny White, if you're going to take $20 million to put the Food City name on the building, like, let's put the students in better seats. And not only have they not put the students in better seats, they have worsened the home court advantage by giving them less seats in the lower bowl and splitting them up on two different sites. I mean, everything they've done, or everything Danny White has done for the environment at TBA has not been, respectfully, Food City Center, sorry, Mm -hmm. Danny, has Mm -hmm. not been great. And to your point, yeah, I mean, it was night and day. Like, uh, this was the third game I've covered in Stegman Coliseum, and it was... 
absolutely completely different than the other two environments. And look, the lot, one of those games you'll remember two years ago was the last game in Tom Crean era. So yeah, mm. obviously it wasn't going to be a good environment, but the other year was Anthony Edwards year and it was early in SEC play and Georgia was very much a bubble team and significantly, and there was a pretty good crowd there that night and significantly worse environment. And another, not that you know, Tennessee needs to implement this or anything, but another to your point of Mike White doing some things to help student attendance and stuff, they, I've been having fraternity and sorority three-on-three basketball tournaments uh, at halftime of all their games this season. They were into the semifinals. Mm-hmm. So clearly it has been a big emphasis of Mike White to uh, get a lot more student attendance at this game. It gives them the better seats. And as he said post-game, it was by far the loudest he's heard Stegman Coliseum in his a year and a half there. And, you know, whatever it's been, whatever it was, I guess, eight, nine years visiting as the Florida head coach. No, and they deserve credit for it. I mean, Georgia fought hard. I thought... One of the things I thought coming in that did not, it's hard to say, and I kind of would rather watch it back to see how much of this um, was even feasible uh, in live game action. But like you saw I do and you saw the cutting, you saw Tennessee just driving past these Georgia bigs. I didn't think Georgia's bigs were good uh, in this game. I thought they were soft. I didn't think they were good at all. And I thought that's where Tennessee could attack with Jonas I do and company that they should feast. Like I did, that's why I thought Tennessee would actually win and cover here. I mean, Adu, you talked about he was tremendous in the second half, especially defensively. But I, I was surprised at how much they didn't go inside and how much Tennessee just kind of got in their own heads where it's like, just go with these dudes. They're, they can't handle it. And you saw when Connect and Zakai decided, we're just going to make them foul us every single time we're going inside because they didn't have an answer. And it was just kind of like, I, I just felt like they were in their own heads a little bit because Connect, it's just like, they they have nobody for you, Connect. Like, there's no one on the floor right now who can do anything with you one-on-one. You clear out on that side, and Connect was just either going to get fouled or he was going to shoot over somebody. And I thought that was a big part of it. And the other part, too, that I, I don't know if you, Barnes has talked about this or you've asked um, about this, Ryan, but we were talking in the group chat where I was like, I don't have the number in front of me, but... My guess is Zakai was the hand in the face for the majority of those Georgia threes. And then Georgia, like, that's the other part of this. You usually lose games when the team shoots as well as Georgia did from three. Like, nine times out of ten. 14 threes at home. Yeah, like, you're going to lose that game nine times out of ten. Like, Tennessee stealing that victory, a lot of that was just because the math wasn't mathing. And you're doing it in your head. You're like, I. that was my biggest worry in the second half. I'm like, I just teams don't win on the road when the home team is shooting this well from three and Tennessee's just not that kind of like, I just, I don't know. It just, the math wasn't mathing and they find a way to win and they deserve a lot of credit because I mean, friend of the pod here on the college basketball weekly, Will Warren, he tweeted out like either Tennessee saves their season here um, in the second half, like midway through, or we're getting ready for uh, football and baseball season. And this team checks out and this is like a collapse that just destroys the rest of the season because of, the nature of it and you could just see how this could spiral uh based on how people were playing and they responded with i think just one of the more uh impressive barnes wins because of the math because of how well georgia was shooting from deep and to not get completely discouraged and also just keep your composure like connect and zakai were like nope we're gonna go ahead and nice this we're gonna take care of business jonas i do gonna do stuff on the defensive side and also barnes being like hey triple j you don't have it uh at all today uh, we're going Meshack down the stretch here because Meshack is the most steady Eddie guy you have on this team. Is you know exactly, it doesn't matter if you put him in two minutes to go, 18 minutes to go, whatever, you are getting the exact same Jemai Meshack experience and you know, and you can count on him. And there's just moments where you have to go with uh, guys you can count on. And I applaud Barnes going Meshack because I still 
have said on this podcast, you know what I'm about to say. He's one of your best five. Like, there's just no way around it. Jemai Meshack is one of the five best players in Tennessee this year. It was a no-brainer for sure to go Meshack over Josiah. And, you know, you almost wish that he would have given Jemai a little more run, especially late in the first half when with two fouls. And, yeah. you know, I guess the problems there late in the first half were more offensive than defense. So maybe it wasn't as glaring at the time. But I did say, you know, I, I sent a text at halftime to someone. It's like, Jemai needs to play more than Josiah in the second half. Like, you just... No, you you can just tell with Josiah. It's mm. offense is just streaky. And now I do think some of the stuff that he did uncharacteristically besides missing shots started happening more in the second half. He started pressing when Georgia, you know, jumped out on Tennessee early. But, you know, to your whole point of Tennessee winning that game and defying the math, it's because their offense is so much better. And it's because of the fact that they scored 1.2 points per possession. And they had 42 points at halftime, despite the fact that they didn't score the last four and a half minutes. And that's something I've written about. And I, I think I said on here last week where Tennessee, it's not like they're just not liable they're, to have four or five minute stretches where their offense looks bad, but they play faster and their offense when it's at its best is just so, so much better than it was last year that they can overcome those. And some of those are just like very few teams in college basketball don't have, you know, stretches for a few minutes, you know, through one media timeout of game where they just don't look good offensively. Um, so to me, that was one of the big differences of it. And, you know, I think you were definitely right. That's almost what made the game so infuriating for Tennessee defensively when they were losing it is that Georgia had no rim presence. Mm-hmm. Offensively or defensively. You're talking about defensively. They didn't have it offensively either. And yeah. first, and, and as it went on more, it was more Georgia playing good offense and getting Tennessee off on their rotations because, like you said, Tennessee was flying by. Zakai was trying to overcome the fact that he wasn't able to close out very well while staying in front of the guys just because of how small he was, and he'd go flying by. It almost felt like the, the Loyola-Chicago game where mm. – Loyola hit a few shots in that game, and Tennessee just went flying past closeout after closeout, and then the rotations were off the rest of the game or the rest of the possessions when that happened. But I failed to say early in the second half, like Tennessee just lost guys. They just lost three point shooters playing mm-hmm. over help when it's like Georgia doesn't have anybody you need to fear going to the basket. Uh, so that's what almost made it frustrating. Tennessee obviously adjusted uh, and pulled pulled out the win, and, and it's kind of funny for the first time, I guess probably since the Grant and Admiral team year you leave a week where Tennessee went one and one on the road you know they win one that they should have won but at the same time like it looked like they were going to lose and they lost one that was you know basically a toss-up game they were a point and a half favorites I think by the time they got to tip off at Mississippi State and you left it saying yeah the offense was good this week the defense is why they lost the game that they lost and it's why they would have lost the game that they they won if they hadn't pulled it out in the end no and I think you won't find – I think it's going to be hard for Tennessee to stop uh, top this kind of win where they're going to have some other big wins here. But I think to come back the way they did and to withstand everything uh, that Georgia threw at them I think was impressive. But and it's also just – I the connect factor you just can't overlook. Like that's a big part of this. It's yeah. like you had Julian Phillips last year and he's obviously not someone you could have counted on that spot. And Tennessee yeah. has just been looking for the last couple really good Rick Barnes teams. Like these last couple years have been elite good Tennessee basketball teams, but they have not even had anyone close to Dalton Connect offensively. Like, there's not even any. Like, you have uh, Kevin Durant just over here. He's like cold blooded and not talking about that. Yeah. Like, it's like it's just different. Everybody knows. It's like the hey the the ball knower. Um, the, the it's like the bus meme where it's like that boy uh, nice. Yeah, that's just Dalton Connect. Where it's like because yeah. he'll do some crazy stuff. He takes some he'll airball something in the corner and he'll do something that I just know drives Rick Barnes absolutely through the wall. But it's like. Hey, he also does stuff where he just saved your season. Like Dalton Connect single-handedly was like, 
all right, let's stop messing around. I'm just going to pull up from three. I'm going to uh, just drive over and over again. I'm just going to use my crazy wingspan and just do whatever I want offensively to win us this basketball game and also just make a bunch of clutch free throws and just not be phased. Like that dude is just not, he loves adversity and he loves you getting in his face and doubting him. Like he's just, hey, he's uh, like Jordan Love this afternoon. Uh, in Dallas he's just he's got that dog in him like Dalton Connect is yeah. he's a final four type player like he's the one you need in March where it's like he can save these spells and Tennessee just hasn't had somebody like what Dalton Connect can be in it when he's on 100% and a couple of thoughts when I'll start with you better believe Rick Barnes brought up that air ball three in the corner <laughs> post game did he really we wanted, he said we drew up that play we wanted him to get to the basket you know we I didn't like that shot but besides you know, besides that the 36 yeah. points was great um I love to your point that the 36 points. It's like, dude, it's a cod, but like, <laughs> well, he, he didn't actually, he didn't actually yeah. say that, but there that part of it. He did bring up three and say, you know, it bothered him. Like he thought about oh, it. Oh, it 100% bothered. It, and mm-hmm. he talked and he talked more or not more. He talked, if not just as much, 40% of the time he talked about Dalton connect yesterday, he talked about how happy he was with the effort he showed on the defensive end. Mm-hmm. Like that's, it's just how he looks at it. He, he's like, the offense is great. Like we, that's just what you know is going to happen. And, you're 100% right of the number of things that he can do and the different ways that he can score. And even, again, like when I talked about that stretch, the first 12 minutes of the second half where Tennessee wasn't good offensively, like a lot of the shots he hit like were not high-probability shots. Like He hit mm-hmm. multiple contested mid-range shots where he just bailed Tennessee out on bad possessions. And everything you said is right about how he just, he just changes the dynamic of this Tennessee team. And that was the three he hit to take the lead, eight seconds into the shot clock, contested... <laughs> Big man closing out deep. I didn't realize until going back and watching it today, like it was a deep three, too. It wasn't just mm-hmm. a, a normal three. Like that's just, that is final four, like winning in March basketball. But to your other point, which I think is so easy to overlook, you mentioned Zakai getting into it a lot. Dalton was getting into it a lot with Georgia guys yeah. during the game, too, and was getting a lot of talk. And Tennessee clearly did a phenomenal job of scouting Dalton connect and figuring out of, okay, this is a dude we really, this dude's really good and he can fix a lot of our offensive issues. There's no way they could have ever known that he could have had this just cold blooded killer Mm. nature in him where a kid who played, who grew up in Thornton, Colorado, not a, not quite a basketball hotbed played Mm. at a junior college for two years, played in the big sky for two more would come into the sec and play four games on the road and be averaging 31 points in them. Like he just, he lives for the moment. The moment's not too big for him. He wants it in that stage. And again, that's where Tennessee, obviously there was a ton of stuff that went really well and they did a great job of, of evaluating Dalton connect and identifying him as a guy. I don't know. I don't mean to take any credit away from the coaching staff for doing that. Cause obviously they deserve a ton of credit, but you never could have known that he could have approached the moment and had that dog in him uh, the way that he has. Only Tennessee can have me where I'm like, season's over, moving on to baseball season to like, oh, this is an absolute Final Four team. Like, they were so back. I'm like, oh, this is a Final Four team. Like, I went. I feel like I saw you do that like three times with the Falcons in games this year too. No, I no, I I don't think so. I will say, shout out to the Cowboys for preventing us from hiring Bill Belichick this afternoon. Uh, yeah. I appreciate that. So that uh, that should be good. Um, no, but. I guess the last thing we'll say on the Tennessee Georgia and what this means, like, is it time now or actually before this, 
how did you think the officiating was? Because I'm not the officiating complainer, I, but I was getting a little redneck mad at the house. Like there was one call that was especially egregious, like where Zakai is like on the, I think it was Zakai on the ground and they called a jump ball where there's a Georgia player just on top of him and the ball, like they called a jump and I'm like, I, I don't know what else Zakai is supposed to do, but the dude's literally on top of Zakai without the ball. Um, I thought this was some poor, they were letting a lot of stuff go. Um, I, I just, Look, not to go full Tennessee redneck mad here, but I I thought this was uh, the the free throw disparity. Um, there was some there was some home cooking in, in this one too that we should give Tennessee credit for withstanding. I try not to be the officiating guy too, and I tweeted about it a couple times yesterday, and I probably deleted a couple other tweets because <laughs> I didn't want to be the officiating guy. And mm-hmm. like I saw all these people at Mississippi State complaining about the officials on Tuesday, and you know mm-hmm. I thought generally do's fifth foul was probably pretty questionable. But that is that what happened at Mississippi State fell in the realm of you were on the road in the SEC. Yeah. You're not unless you're Kentucky, which we saw in unbelievable <laughs> fashion yesterday, you're not gonna get a good whistle. And Mississippi mm-hmm. State was the aggressor in that game. So that was just naturally gonna happen. This game, Georgia, as I just previously noted, had no or no rim defense and no rim offense. And some of the calls were just were pretty unbelievable. And mm. uh, some of the ones that stood out to me were just like the continuation. Silas Demary oh, had yeah. a drive in the first half where he got fouled at the three point line, and it was called mm. an and one. Um, <laughs> and then the, and you mentioned this guy jump ball. The one that I thought was worse was the Jemai jump ball. When Jemai yeah. gets a defensive rebound and gets tackled as a guy going after <laughs> the ball, and it gets called a jump ball and gives mm. Georgia the ball back in you know what I think was a tie game or maybe a yeah. one point game in like three minutes. A huge call. Um, so. Yeah, I try not to be that guy, but Tennessee got an inordinately bad whistle, even for playing on the road in the SEC, I thought, yesterday. Um, final thing on Tennessee basketball before we go into this week here, Ryan. Um, Freddie DeLeon gets a lot of first half uh, run. I thought the main thing that sticks out with him, and he flashes in this regard, He's he has no fear of pushing the ball and driving inside. Like, that guy is totally comfortable doing things that Tennessee just does not have. Like, even Sakai, when he's driving, he's looking to pass. Like, Sakai is keeping his eyes up. He's looking around to see if Josiah is in the corner. Vescovi is in the corner. Like, he's not looking to score. He'll take it if he's there. But, I mean, Sakai would rather shoot a deep three than uh, shoot really close to the rim when he's uh, navigating inside. DeLeon is looking to draw contact and he didn't get an he got a no call at one point where he gets smacked in the head it was early in the game on a fast break. transition yes yeah. and he just is looking for it but i think he was careful because like barnes gonna pull me if i go a little angry here <laughs> if i really get uh, emotional about this non-call but i thought he flashed i mean he almost got he got crossed up at one point on defense early but like look he he's gonna have to play to work through that and also build his confidence like that's a tough environment everything else like i thought delion flashed a little bit and then Cam Carr, you wonder, is he, because he's obviously not on the rotation, J.B. Estrella, those guys, he's not. Barnes has shrank, shrunk his rotation big time uh, come a CC play. But, I mean, Jordan Gay, uh, I mean, Katie is just, it's over. Like, it's just, he takes one shot, no, he misses it. He has no confidence whatsoever. I don't, it's the whole, I don't know what you do here from office space um, with Ganey at this point. Because DeLeon at least adds something. I know what DeLeon's going to do. DeLeon's going to attack. And Dillion, I think, will start drawing fouls, and I think he will have value. And we talked about it off-air. He should be the Zakai primary backup ball handler. I think we're now at that point where he needs to get those minutes. When Zakai sits, I think those need to go to uh, Dillion. And then Cam Carr, it's like, are you sure Cam Carr can't do what Ganey's doing at this point and give him some some run? I, I don't know. Are, are, you, are we too hard on where Ganey is at as a player right now? Or especially compounded with Vescovi just shooting the way he is to this point, that I think... There is a fair argument that Carr needs to be reinserted into this rotation, especially for Ganey at this point. 
I don't think you're being unfair about where Ganey is right now. I think it's maybe a little bit unfair to just like write it off that he it's impossible for him to turn it around. I'll start with Freddie. That was my biggest takeaway from the Mississippi State game is what you said is that if Sakai is not on the court, Freddie needs to be the backup point guard. Like mm. that's a definitive role. And look, like that's not committing too much because Sakai plays so many minutes. Yeah. Now, I think it's ideal. You would hope that can grow into him taking some of Jordan Ganey's minutes and playing the two spot some. I'm a little skeptical of how those two guys fit on the court together. You know, Freddie and Zakai are just both so ball dominant um, that I, I, not that it can't work, but I'm just unsure of exactly how that works. Now, yeah, I mean, the way Ganey's playing right now, like he, it's just tough to have him in there. And I don't think Cam Carr is an answer from a shooting standpoint. Like, I don't think he's going to come in and be like some massive upgrade over Vescovy or. Ganey from as a whole as a as a shooter but again Ganey's struggling so I don't think it's crazy to give him a look I still think it's if you made you asked me right now the four freshmen Tennessee's playing in sweet 16 rank the the probability of them playing seven minutes in this game I would probably have Kemp Carr last hmm. still because I think Freddie's growing into that role and I think they need one of Cade Phillips or, or yeah, or Estrella to step up and be able to give them some minutes. I don't know which one it is, which one it'll be. I wish they could put Cade Phillips' game in J.P. Estrella's body. I think that's what they need, the toughness and physicality Cade Phillips plays with in J.P. Estrella's frame. I just struggle to see the path uh, for Camp Carr, even though you laid it out. I'm just I'm just a little skeptical. I'm just not sure he's, he's really there yet. Well, to start SEC play, uh, Ganey is one for three, or one for uh, seven, excuse me. He has one total three uh, to this point. Um, he's shooting on the road just as a whole this year. Like, on the road. Doesn't even have to include SEC play. 24% from three. It's a lot of threes. I mean, it's just been, like, there's just no other way to put it. Like, unfortunately, it's like he's been a disaster. Um, and I just, it hasn't mattered because you have gotten a lot of uh, great play across the board. And like you said, he can still turn around but I do wonder how much longer you do this before other guys also on the team look around where they're like, cause I think that could be natural, right? Where if you're car, you're like, or, or DeLeon, you're like, uh, what? Like obviously coaches on staff, like what more, like, or why am I not getting a look here? Why? Like how much longer can the struggles really go before you're like, look, we got to make it, make a change. Like we have to show that we're willing to, uh, go a different way if you're not playing well, regardless of who you are. Because like you do with Triple J, like Triple J did not have it, and he's a super senior and everything else. Like it's, it's, I mean, confidence from Rick Barnes, and he has that kind of respect where he can be like, nope, sorry, don't care. This is a uh, whoever's playing well, I'm riding. And Mayshak was who we rode over J Triple J at the end. Like I don't know, we'll see where that goes. Yeah, I mean, he played 13 minutes yesterday, so it's not like they're leaving him out there to play 20 minutes a night. So I mean, 13 minutes matter. Those 13 minutes matter in these games. Yeah, certainly these they do. These are close games. These are going to be a lot of close games. And that could be like a if it minus six in those 13 minutes, that could be a difference beating Kentucky. Yeah, I just, again, I don't see the night and day answer. I mean, can't you yeah. you said he's one of seven from three on the road or or an SEC His play last one of seven games, and yeah, three. SEC, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's a bad number. Cam Carr shooting two of eight against worst teams. So, yeah. again, where's the where's the immediate answer? But no, I would say 
from a pure, not necessarily a matchup standpoint, because I think that would still be defending, you know, good physical post players would be Tennessee's biggest issue. But from where like the weak link in the rotation is, it's, you know, it's no doubt who's going, besides Jemai Maychak, who's going to play that second guard spot off the bench. Brian Shumpert, switching to football here. Um, if the Vols land Hurd, uh, the offensive tackle, which is still, we don't know when that might be officially announced. It seems like everything is pointing to Tennessee winding up with the former five-star offensive tackle from um, LSU. I mean, the cousin's already in the boat uh, with, uh, uh, is it Jamarius Hurd? I always, Jamarius Hurd, right? And then it's Zalance Hurd, um, who'll be coming in, uh, going by Lance. But um part of the class Rome, Georgia. Uh, he, he might be an offensive line, might be defensive line. We'll see what he does uh, once he gets to campus in a full uh, off season, this, that, and the other. But I mean, if Tennessee lands heard and he's your left tackle going to next year, you move John Campbell to right. Are you comfortable with where Tennessee is going to be with the offensive line going into 2024? If they end it just with Hurd, It's a scale thing, but yes. Like I, I think, I think Tennessee would have upgraded their offensive line over last year, in my opinion. If you mm. land, if you land Hurd, now is that good enough to win the SEC? No, I don't think so. Unless Nico's just unbelievable and you know can do a lot of the same thing, same things Hinden Hooker did, you know, expanding plays and making stuff off script, which you know we've seen some of. Um, but when you're talking about what Tennessee was going to be able to fix it in this offseason, I don't think they could have done too much better. Sure, you'd probably like to add another body at guard. Um, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but the kid from Armage, Reed Adams, I think was his name, the kid mm. from Kansas who went to A&M, you know, I think you would have liked from the fact that he's a solid guard and can also play tackle if called upon. But as a whole, I mean, bringing the guys they brought back and and really trading Mincy for Hurd, you know, obviously they got to land Hurd. They got to make that official. To me, that would be a, a no-doubt upgrade and, of what you were going to do in one offseason to make your offensive line better next year, I don't think they could have done a ton. Now, is that where it needs to be long-term? No. But from what they could have done this offseason, I think that's about as good as you could have could have hoped for. And we'll see on Sprags. Uh, he hasn't officially announced as of this recording, but it seems like by all indication he's back. And Garch is not as big of a concern here. Like, Tennessee has shown yeah. they can put, I mean, a lot of different dudes. Jackson Lampley played great down the stretch for Tennessee. So, I mean, even if Sprags Played great in the bowl game. Yeah, I mean, but hey, maybe that's him turning the corner. Maybe Lampley yeah, is solid. Be, certainly. And I was better. I was even slightly certainly a lot better than yeah. Vanderbilt, who he struggled against. So it wasn't like he did it against, you know, nobody. So, and yeah, yeah I, I think I think Sprags are probably just going to see. You're not going to get an announcement. He'll just be there yeah. they, on January 22nd when classes finally start. It's absolutely ridiculous that his classes <laughs> still are a week away from starting for Tennessee. Um, but yeah, and I say all that assuming Sprags comes back. And you probably wouldn't like the role with Lampley and Andrej Carrick as your two best options at guard going into next year, but I think that's fine. I believe, yeah, it's as I believe we said on last week's pod, Tennessee got by with Ollie Lane being their starting left guard for a full year, so and it was it wasn't catastrophic. You can get by with no, it. No, he guard. was great. Yeah, yeah, no penalties. Nah, look, I mean, outside of the Florida game, Ollie was Ollie was rock solid, and when he was enforced, and also that dude deserves just an a for having to do a lot of stuff that i'm certain he was not expecting to do yes uh, and that's a good point when he when he that was playing left guy. guard like that guy he is a team, team guy. guy when he was playing with the spot that he was prepared to play and worked at he was very serviceable yes. it was really only at center when again was not his fault the tennessee in year 
three of Josh Heupel having to develop the backup center. That wasn't yeah. that wasn't only Lane's fault. That's really only when things went real sideways for him. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think 2025 is the year that I've circled because you're going to have a situation where either Sham or Bennett Warren has to be one of the tackles. Like that's a lot of pressure is on Ellerbe to develop one of those two. Um, because Campbell's gone. There's no other John and that you're not just going to get another herd in the portal. Like that's just, you don't get five star offensive tackles just every year. That's not sustainable. And that's probably not likely. So you go into the expectation that herds at the left side, and then you go into the expectation that one of Bennett and sham went at the right side. And then you go to the guard spots. Look, I mean, Bison Lang should be the starting center, uh, barring he doesn't enter the portal year three. It's a lot of time in the system. We're about to see what he develops and what, three years behind Cooper has meant for him. That will be interesting. And then you look at the guards. Andre Karich is gone. Um, Jackson Lampley will be gone. I mean, William Satterwhite might need to be him. Another guy you recruited, Max Anderson, is going to be in that conversation. Spraggs is gone. <laughs> I mean, you look at it. 2025 is the ultimate indictment year. Uh, and Glenn Ellerby and the staff. And I think this year, like you said, I think they're going to have a better offensive line in 2024 than they did in 2023. It, granted they get hurt because if not like you're still looking at look great swing guy guy you want in your depth room but dan davis cannot be your starting right tackle uh for a team that's expecting to make the college football playoff uh in 2024 but i think that is just i'm so fascinated to see what that looks like in 2025 we got a long way to go but i think tennessee fans worry about the offensive line in 2024 for nico because he got hit a lot six sacks whatever uh and the citrus bowl I just think if Hurd's in the boat, you have Campbell, who was solid all year long, bringing back Cooper and company, I think they're going to be more than fine uh, week in, week out. No doubt. And it, it's tackle. Like, that's the spot mm. that you circle. And obviously, Hurd, that's what was so exciting about Hurd, Tennessee and Landham, is that you have him for at least two years. But again, and obviously, center, I, I would say, too, there does seem to be some optimism around Vice and Lang uh, mm. that he is developing into a legitimate backup for Cooper and a guy that can replace him. But it's, it's just what we always talk about. A guard, it feels like you can get by and you can grab somebody in the portal. It's just, I mean, we've seen it this offseason of Tennessee having to explore the portal options. And obviously, they haven't landed any of these guys, but there's a lot of serviceable guards out there. There's not a ton of serviceable offensive tackles. So, to me, that's the big spot. It is, And you, you laid it out well with Sham and Bennett Warren. Those are the two guys you circle. It feels like you got to have one of those guys developed and ready to start in 25. Absolutely. Uh, Ryan Shepard, final thing on football for you, our uh, baseball baseballs player spotlight here. True or false, the Vols run game will be better in 2024 than in 2023 because I've seen a lot of Tennessee fans. And I think if you average, I'm curious if you believe this too. If we pulled the average Tennessee ball fan around Knoxville, like we go in to Litton's tomorrow afternoon, Ryan. Granted, I mean, it's going to be pretty snowy, so I don't think anything's going to be open here uh, here in East Tennessee. But if we were, I think if we pulled the average Vol fan at Linton's and we asked them this question, I think they would say it should be better. And I, my gut instinct is no. I actually think the running game will not be better. And I think people are going to be surprised at how underrated Jalen Wright was uh, for Tennessee this past year. And where we both think about Dylan Sampson uh, to this point as a lead back, not a change of pace guy, not like he had some moments. He had a solid day against Iowa, but I'm curious if you think it will be better because I think if you ask most Vol fans, they would expect it to be better uh, in 2024. 
I saw this on the outline, and it's funny you say that. I saw this on the outline, and to me, it felt like the obvious answer was no. Like, mm-hmm. Jalen Wright was really, really good. He was no worse than a third best back in the SEC. I'd probably put him mm-hmm. second best back uh, behind Cody Schrader and ahead of Ray Davis and Quinshawn Juckins. So, to me, I feel like it'll be worse. Not massively worse, like not an issue worse, but it, I don't think it'll be as good. And look, a lot of it depends on how Dylan Sampson develops like Jalen Wright came in as a dude that was not didn't have great vision and didn't play with great pad level and didn't break a bunch of tackles and it was a real good runner between the tackles he came in the way we've seen Dylan Sampson as a speed dude who wanted to run around everybody I mean he Jalen Wright had in his freshman year when he kind of got thrust into a bigger role when Tyon Evans had his injury transfer I don't remember all the timeline of all that and he had some, you know, hilariously bad, like, vision reads. And it was pretty incredible how much he developed. Now, that was two years before he had his big breakout year. And I thought there were, I know myself, and I think you were too, really high on Jalen Wright going into last year mm-hmm. with some of the signs he showed the back half of the 22 season. And Dylan Sampson's a great playmaker. Just not sure he's a great running back yet. So, a lot of it depends on how much more he develops, how much better he can get in the offseason. And, you know, you can say the same for Cam Seldon, how... Because those get dudes complement each other really well. They're two completely different changes of pace. Um, but yeah, my my n- initial instinct or natural instinct is that it'll be worse, just not a ton worse. And it won't matter as much if Nico is Nico. Now, it will matter if the receivers are, struggle just as much as they did uh, this past year. Like if the receivers are still having those kind of issues and the running game takes a step back, then you're... You're you're in a precarious situation, I think, uh, in Knoxville week over week. But I just think Jalen Wright, he's an NFL back, and I'm not sure. Um, We'll see with Dylan Sampson. I think, like you said, they're so different between him and Cam Seldon. I think it's actually more about Cam than it is about Dylan, because I think we know what Dylan Sampson is. I don't think, I I just, I I don't think there's another level. Like we saw Jalen Wright just unlock another level year over year and build on stuff. I think we have a pretty good idea of what Dylan Sampson is. I don't think we have any idea what Cam Seldon could be. I think the potential is higher as a running back at Tennessee. I think the ceiling is significantly higher for him than Dylan. But, and I think that's the biggest difference is because he ran Jabari Small at the, at the number two guy. It wasn't Dylan Sampson who was the backup for Jalen Wright last year. So if Cam Seldon is a significant upgrade, change of pace guy from uh, Jabari Small, then I think the offense, the running game will be better. Like if you are able to get just 75% of Jalen Wright from Dylan Sampson, but Cam Seldon is a humongous upgrade from Jabari Small in terms of just electricity and keeping uh, just scaring uh, opposing defenses um, from play, uh, series to series, then there's a path to this running game being better. So I think it for me, it falls more on Cam Seldon than uh, Dylan Sampson. That's probably fair, just from the standpoint of, I don't think we really know what Tennessee has in Cam Seldon at all. We yeah. didn't see him much this year. I mean, you didn't, we didn't know what position he was going to play before he got to Tennessee, whether it was going to be a receiver and running back because of just how interesting or different or how many multiple things he did in high school. So, yeah, I can see that. And I still do still think there's some variance of what Dylan Sampson can be as a true running back. But you don't have the depth. And, you know, you look, what's who's their third back? You know, injuries. Tennessee got really blessed this year. And the one year when Tennessee really could have afforded a running back injury, they stayed healthy the entire yeah. year. And you look and you look ahead to next year, and certainly Peyton Lewis is a really talented dude, and Khalifa Keith has been on campus for a year. But who's Tennessee's third back? What what do they give them? What happens if there's an injury? Like 
there's a lot more questions about the running back room going into next year. And obviously when you have questions, it's not always a bad thing. And it's just more about a variance uh, of the ceiling and the floor. And I think that's very true uh, about Tennessee's running back room going into next season. I don't disagree. Um, Final thing here, Ryan Shumpert, weekly baseball player spotlight. We're doing uh, ahead of the college baseball season, just over a month away here, Dylan Dryling, what makes him great? Why he'll be the everyday left fielder and how he has evolved as a player since he first stepped on campus and why Tennessee fans should be very excited about his future in Knoxville. Well, to start, you know, what he's good at, what what's there to excite about? I'll go back to something that Griffin Merritt said uh, last year when talking to us, maybe the Vanderbilt game when Dylan Dryling, I guess that would have been it, uh, when Dylan Dryling hit hit one of those home runs in the ninth inning um, that, that got Tennessee back in the game, and Griffin Merritt ended up hitting the walk-off. I think he had to walk off in that game. Uh, certainly a big home run, and he was like, Dylan Dryling is a dude that gives tips to other hitters, and they listen to, and you're talking about you know, tips as far as what they're seeing from the pitcher standpoint. Mm. And you're talking about a true freshman who didn't start and was coming off the bench in that game late or coming out of the dugout late. And he had, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, ridiculous, ridiculous stats as a pinch hitter last season, like incredible weapon versatility. So he's just, and I say all that to say, just a natural hitter and has really good hitting instincts. Um, He can hit for average. He can hit for power. There's a lot to like there. And uh, I think the, Question, as always is a question for one of these guys stepping up into a bigger role, is how do they handle being out there every single day? How do they handle being more scouted? You know, we'll still see exactly what his role is, but, you know, and potentially in his case, how does he handle being the number two to number five, a hitter in the middle of the lineup or the top of the lineup that people circle, as opposed to a fringe starter or a pinch hitter? Like, that changes things. The other thing, and where I think he's probably grown the most, is just what he's done defensively. Uh, He was not much of a skilled defender when he got to Tennessee. Uh, I know that was a huge emphasis for him after his first fall. Uh, I remembered him talking about him going home uh, to, oh, I'm trying to remember where he's from. Kansas, Re- right? Yeah, it's Kansas, yes. Mm. They had all those guys. They had Stanwich from Illinois, Chapman mm. from Colorado, and him for Kansas. And talking about him going home for over Christmas break and like working on his defense every day uh, mm. and fielding and me just thinking, man, being outside working on working as a defender in December in Kansas sounds awful. Um, so I think Tennessee that's baseball. Cause that man has that dog. And if you're doing that all about yeah. it. Yeah. So I think he's a really mature player. Um, and, and that's what, where you've seen, that's what there is. that's already really good about him. And that's also where you can see him growing and improving and, and why he's, he's stepping into a role that, you know, it looks like he'll, certainly be in Tennessee's starting lineup and, and is certainly the odds on favorite to be a starting left fielder. Yeah. I mean, I think that should be the case. He, I mean, he is just going to continue. Tennessee fans are going to be like, is that Drew Gilbert or is that Dylan Dryling? Like it's going to be one of those. Cause he has the same build. Um, he has the same kind of personality. It seems like, I don't think anyone will ever have the same kind of intensity that Drew Gilbert had. And I, I miss it every day, but I do think Dryling has some, He's just not really scared. Like he was in some huge pinch hit roles this past year. Um, Tony called him, clearly trusted him. He seems like he's going to be a high OBP guy always while he's at Tennessee. I think he's just a smart hitter and just going to be a pain to get out. Maybe he's like, maybe the best version is like, he's a cross between Dryling and Dickey where Dickey was like that, where you, I have Gilbert said, and like, Gilbert and Dickey. Yeah. Like, I think that's how he, like, that w- would be my best case scenario for Dryling is some combination between that where Gilbert just had more of the power and raw power, I think, 
um, that I don't necessarily think Dryling will ever be because I think part of Dryling's appeal is like I think he just wants to bat like 345 like in the college level and I think that's possible um, for him to be that kind of Jared Dickey high average pain in the butt to get out from the lefty side of things and uh, I think Gilbert was like I'll sacrifice average while sing- swinging for the fences um, more often than not especially when he got moved in that four hole but I don't know that's my my gut is drawing some kind of cross between those two yeah I think that's fair I mean you kind of saw the way you're describing that cross I think you kind of saw Gilbert become that like his his hmm. junior year Gilbert I mean let's not let it be forgotten that he had like the second highest batting average in the SEC his junior True. year he'd be Became so much, so so much better hitter uh, yeah. from his sophomore year to his junior year, and yeah, Dryling like he doesn't have the brashness that Drew Gilbert has, and maybe we see more of that as he steps into a bigger role and like proves it. But he does have the intensity, like that's where yeah. I think you're you're on the nose with it. I think he's a really really intense guy and a really competitive guy in the same way. So a lot to be excited about uh, with him and. Uh, Again, he's one. You look at the Tennessee lineup, and we talk about it how it should be so much better, and I think it will be so much better. And usually, when you say that, you have a lot of guys back, and Tennessee has some guys back. But really, I think where more of that excitement comes from, certainly the transfer portal guys in Amick and Peebles, but it's guys like Dryling and it's guys like Kavaris Tears, who we've seen a little bit of it from uh, and have been on campus for a little bit that seem really poised to step up and, and take a big step forward. I'm excited. He's locked in at uh, the left field spot. We'll see how he uh, hangs in there defensively, but I'm not really worried about Dryling in, in left field going into next year. He's like one of the ones I've penciled in that like I, I would be very surprised if Dryling's not a really good everyday player for Tennessee this year. Yeah, no, I, I feel Where do you think he bats similarly. in the order? Yeah, I think that's some of that will be just interesting of, again, Tennessee's going to have a ton of lefties, so like how does mm-hmm. Tony Vitello stagger that which we've seen he likes to do you know second is the spot that i think really makes a lot of sense for him because he Mm. has some power but he also gets on base at such a high rate and it feels like you're gonna start easily go in this scenario one maybe one i mean i'm i'm trying to think it all through but it feels like you have three four five is some version of christian moore billy amick and blake and peoples oh Blake Burke should not be around three, four, five uh, until proven otherwise. Look, I I get why you say that, but again, Blake Burke was one of Tennessee's two best hitters in fall practice, and that's put that's how coaches are going to be. He can't hurt me again. I I won't do this until he proves it. I can't do this. Call me in March. Like I need to see SEC play Blake Burke. I yeah, no, I, I I get that, but you're not going. I get I completely get that. But when you're talking about where things are going to start at the beginning of the year, yeah you're going to do what you see in practice. And he was, again, really good. And it was, and like, he did a lot of this in the fall two years ago, too. But, like, it wasn't just power. Like, his yeah, OBP, his batting average was really good. So, I don't know. There's a lot of intriguing options in, for the batting order, and I haven't I've had my hands full with football offseason and basketball that I haven't sat oh, down and figured it all me, out. Ryan but... Shepard over here <laughs> just making excuses for not grinding the fall camp tape here. That's the problem. We're so far away from fall, fall camp. College baseball is so absurd in so many ways, and mm-hmm. chief among them is the fact that the actual preseason that matters, like matters most, and the biggest conclusions to get drawn from coaches, happens four months before the season starts, and then they come back for like four weeks, three and a half weeks in practice, and the, the dead of winter, mm. <laughs> gets started in the full. Uh, you know, more full team stuff and it'll be snowing this week 
and it's like you don't even draw as many conclusions from that. So, I don't and know. guys, college baseball it's a absurd. brutal thing, man. College baseball is brutal because these kids who come back for fall camp and you look at the numbers, you're like, holy crap, they're bringing back how many? How many walk-ons? And you're like, because it's like the half school. It's just weird. College baseball is weird, but it's also just like the Hunger Games uh, on SEC campuses right now. <laughs> it's like Bear Bryant Alabama football rosters before they put scholarship scholarship limits on. Yeah, it's just got like bringing in fifty dudes on scholarship every yeah. every signing class. That's that's what college baseball is. Yeah, that's what I mean. I just I would watch it. Be like, just Tony needs to amp it up. Like he just drops a ball somewhere. He's like, go get it. It's like just uh, just really messes with him a little bit, but I don't know. Um, Ryan Shepard, go check out RockyTopInsider.com today if you're not already bookmark it for all ball fans. Uh, if you've not already done so, great daily coverage from Ryan and Jack and Rick and the team over there on basketball, baseball, even though kind of waiting for some more baseball content here, Ryan. Uh, I was looking for it the other day and just... And I need some more baseball content, but I'll, I'll allow it because this basketball team looks like Final Four team right now. And also, obviously, because uh, football is supreme in this town, always and forever. All kinds of great content as well over there. Brian Shepard, always a pleasure. And I'll talk to you next week. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.